Welcome to Founders of Friends podcast with Scott Orn and Hyatt Camps of Bolts VC. Hyatt is returning for a second podcast on Founders of Friends. Just can't get enough, apparently. Exactly. It's quite an honor. You're, I think you're the third person, so this is we're getting up there. Yes. Um, so we did a talk at Bolts probably like a month ago, and it was actually really good. And we had answered a ton of questions, and so uh, we want to have Hyatt back on the podcast. And we got a little twist here, and the twist is... Well, basically, uh, at this event, uh, I ended up interviewing Scott, and I thought, hey, that's fun, and Scott has a lot of interesting things to say, but usually he asks a lot of questions, so I figured it would be fun to turn this on its head and then ask Scott some questions instead of, you know, the other way around. And I've never been interviewed on this podcast, so this is exciting for me. And the cool thing about being interviewed, it takes, in a weird way, less brain power, because you don't have to think of all the questions, so you had to think of a bunch of questions. So now I can just sit here. That's why I'm so loose. I'm just like ready to answer like, questions. Yeah, like, this fire. Talk, I'm, drinking, I'm drinking a Barry LaCroix and I am ready to go. Excellent. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> just a little bit of background to understand where these questions are coming from, I suppose. So I have done three startups. Uh, the first one I did uh, was hilariously uh, problematic for many reasons. Uh, but the main thing I learned there was that I didn't know anything about finance. You know, we... Uh, We had one accountant, uh, actually we had three accountants throughout the life of this startup. And the third accountant finally explained this crazy thing to me, which was the matching principle. And I was like, what are you talking about? That's not a real thing. Uh, And he explained it to me in great detail. And it turned out that that was a crucial thing for us as a hardware company that has a huge amount of inventory to understand. And nobody explained it to me. And I was like, oh, now finally my finances will make sense. So I guess my first question to you would be, what is the matching principle and why should I care? Yeah, and even before that, like Bolt is a hardware uh, VC fund. You guys invest in hardware, which on the accounting side is actually like, as you touched on, is like the hardest kind of company to do the accounting for. So like even like I talked to someone you sent over the other day, and she's a very nice woman. I was like, just so you know, this is actually like probably double the cost of like if you were a SaaS business. And she was like, oh, wow. I didn't, you know, because there is, there's, you guys are buying a ton of hardware, a ton of equipment that typically gets assembled into some type of device or a piece, yeah. a bigger machine. And so there's two ways of doing that. Um, the first one is oftentimes early stage, we will expense everything. It's basically like you recognize that expense in the time period it happened. And then as the company gets older and more mature and frankly has more money and they're buying more stuff, also has more money to spend on OPEX like accounting, we will start doing build materials yep. and building actual costs of goods sold. And this is, becomes very important for your gross margin and things like that. In the early days, people, investors don't really care. They just want like, they want to know what you're spending your money on and they want to see the product works and they want a hypothetical gross margin that you can usually present yeah. in a financial So we model. just went real deep, real fast and I yeah. want to stop you Sorry. and rewind. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, uh, I guess explain to me why hardware is different and why people should care. Yeah, because for like an in a SaaS company or consumer internet company, you're mostly your biggest expenses are people who are usually writing code for software. It's it's pretty clear. It's like payroll expenses, and then oftentimes contractors things like that. And then you're going to spend money on like web services, like all the online services that you use to also help build the product. For hardware, you're building like. What, what what's something you guys have invested in or or trigger trap you know like the, sure yeah. uh, actually let me just clarify another thing first is that when you have a server that is incurring costs 
you are using that server to deliver your service, yeah. right? So if you run a web service or something, yep. the bill from AWS probably comes in the month that you incur the expenditure, yeah. which means that those are the same. You don't yeah. have to worry about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In hardware, that gets really different. So right now, we have a, one of the companies I'm really excited about is called Core. And they're building a uh, hardware meditation device that you mm. hold in your hands, right? But some of the parts that go into this run, they ordered months yeah, ago. totally. Right? And so they've put some money towards it. Uh, they have wood parts, which is phenomenal, right? But they placed the order for this ages ago. And yep. it takes a very long time to make those parts. Then they turn up in their warehouse. Yep. And then they can turn it into a product. And then eventually it gets put on their website for sale. Then it gets or they receive money and then they take this product, put it in a box and put it in a mail and then it turns up at the customer's yep. house. And at some point you have to recognize this as revenue. Yep. That is very different from you are Twitter, right? You yep. sell an ad, the ad gets served and it's pretty much immediate. You don't even really have to worry about whether or not there's a time difference. And so for core, like when they make that order, probably from like a, a manufacturing plant in China or something, or maybe they buy... 10 different components from all over the world. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Only 10 components? <laughs> yeah, there's probably 50. <laughs> so there are 100. So they so they are paying, oftentimes they're paying a deposit on some of that to get like the run, especially for small companies. And they're they're buying it. So then they get shipped to them. They pay, say they pay for the whole thing. Theoretically, in the proper gap accounting world, that would go on your on in your inventory on your balance sheet. And then as you assemble these products, the physical product, and you sell it, it becomes a cost of goods sold as a, like an item you sold. And that's when you recognize the expense and you take it away from inventory, put it through cost of goods sold. And then of course you said, do they get paid for doing this? So then, you know, you're, you look at your P&L and you say, oh, we sold a hundred of these for $10,000 and we had $5,000 worth of cost of goods sold in that month for the items we sold. Therefore, our gross margin is 50% or $5,000. And great, now we have a VC fundable model because I think a gross margin of 50% is pretty good for a hardware company. I don't know, you would know better than I would. I could say this now that Trio Trap is long dead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we had amazing margins on those products uh, because basically we sold a piece of hardware that we manufactured for about $2 for uh, $39. That's amazing. That that's, is an amazing gross that, margin, right? That's amazing. If you are making washing machines, you're not going to see yeah, that yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. gross margin, right? Also, because yeah. And also for startups in the early days, they don't have a lot of volume. So typically their gross margins are kind of crummy because they don't have like any buying power at the factories that are making the components and things like that. But Right. And, have, and they haven't gone through a custom optimization loop, which is an important thing of going from a production prototype to actual scale production, yep, right? Yep. The two might actually turn out to be really different because... As you start ramping up, you realize, oh, we can't get those components. Or actually, if we redesign the board slightly and swap out this component for a different one, it takes 30 cents of our, exactly. of our cost. And, and so actually, hardware companies can have really good margins. Like Apple is the, is the constant example. Like they have huge margins, but they're also, they've optimized everything like you're talking about. They have 30 years or 40 years of manufacturing experience. And they have a ton of software in the product that makes it kind of sticky and people don't want to replace it and you can't use commodity. You can't swap it out for a commodity product, right? So, right. But did I answer your question? Like as, as Core buys their, their components, that's effectively some, an expense or money they paid in advance that goes on their balance sheet in the inventory component. And then as they start assembling and selling it, it becomes cost of goods sold. 
and that goes on your profit and loss statement and it's and then you figure out your gross margin after you take the revenue minus the cost of goods sold. Yeah. And I guess the thing worth highlighting there, both for hardware companies and for every other company, would be that there's a huge difference between how much cash flows in and out of the business and what the P&L actually shows. Yes, that's or, a great What do you call point. it here? It's not a P&L. It's called something else. Uh, income statement. Income Same statement. Thing. But no, yeah. that's an awesome point. And that's what makes the accounting hard, actually, is because you're paying – a lot of times you're paying like half of it up front to the factory just to get them to build whatever you need. So that's half the cash of your components that went out the door. You're not even close to revenue. Right. You know? And then you got you to gotta float the rest of it when they finally produce it and send it to you. You can pay the rest of that. And so you have a lot of working capital costs, which is exactly what you and I are talking about. And then eventually you can sell the product and get the money back. That's actually why Kickstarters are so um, popular for hardware companies because you can effectively finance your working capital upfront through yep. the Kickstarter or Indiegogo. And so that's why you see that a lot happening. And also the reason why Kickstarter and Indiegogos are popular for hardware companies is a lot of VCs don't like to fund hardware companies. So you guys, that's why I always love Bolt because you guys like, I feel like you guys are a very brave VC firm and are really doing it. And I think there's a ton of opportunity, but like Kickstarter effectively exposes demand for these hardware products that VCs may or may not want to fund. Yep. And so, so Kickstarter is solving two problems, the inventory buildup or inventory funding, and also the fact that these companies are just getting funded a little bit. Yeah. You, do you guys look at that? Like, do you see, you have a lot of companies coming to you that haven't done a Kickstarter and then... Yeah, so we, this is a complicated answer. Yeah. <laughs> because I personally am a huge fan of Kickstarter. Bolt as a firm isn't. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of history around what, uh, around the why. I can guess why. Uh, yeah. But I think the honest truth is that, you know, the, the there is an assumption there that if somebody has to go to a Kickstarter campaign, it means that they were unsuccessful in any other way of doing funding. Yeah. Much like equity crowdfunding, right? When I first discovered equity crowdfunding was a thing that existed, I was very excited about it. Yeah. But if you think about where that deal flow comes from, it is, and there are very big notable exceptions, I should say that yeah. up front, but a lot of it is just the dregs where yeah. you know there, there is a reason why these companies weren't funded and so it ends up on a crowdfunding side. Yeah, I now, would say though, there's the, the cool thing about, so that's, those are both good points. One of our clients, our old clients, uh, they outgrew us is Republic that spun up Angelus and shout out to Ken Nguyen. Um, and they are, I think, doing a good job of changing that. That whole uh, adverse selection problem is what you're talking about. Right. And it's becoming more normalized. It's exactly what you would expect as like a concept goes from kind of the crossing the chasm is the elites or whatever. And then it crosses the chasm into more mainstream. Yeah. And like some of the, the Meet the Drapers TV show and what's the, what's the Shark Tank one. All these things are making investing in startups more normalized, I think, in our right. culture. And so Republic's kind of writing that. AngelList obviously helps. But, so I think that's changing, um, but it, you're right, especially like two or three years ago, you're super right, you know. There's another thing as well, which is there is a very scary thing about investing early stage, right? And I feel like Shark Tank is actually a little bit disingenuous, in particular Shark Tank, but also all the other shows, in that obviously they're well produced, right? And there's yeah. a lot of stuff happening in the decision-making process that the viewer doesn't get a look in, look into. So it feels like it, being an angel investor is pretty sexy and awesome, and it's basically a guarantee to be a pretty awesome person who gets yeah. to make a lot of money. 
the real world is very different, right? Have you ever made angel investments? Yes, I have. Well, uh, the reason I'm laughing at Shark Tank is they very rarely do follow-ups of like what the actual performance is. And also, we've had, I think, four or five of our clients on Shark Tank. And so I get the real story from the CEOs. And and it's like a four-hour process. They they cut a four-hour process down to like five minutes. Yeah. And it's like brutally long and the judges get bored and they stop paying attention for long periods of time. And yeah. So you're, you're totally right. I, going back on the Kickstarter thing, I would have thought – I thought your answer was going to be why you guys don't like it is because the minute you take people's money, you actually have to deliver a product and delivering a hardware product is really hard. A Kickstarter is debt. Yeah. It's debt. Yeah. And it's like – but people totally under, underestimate how hard it is to deliver – and how expensive it is. It always costs more than they think and da 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 And it's, it's, you're right. It's like an obligation. It's a debt. Well, and you're doing all that in public, right? Yeah. You're doing that in the most public way possible. Yeah. You're basically putting a stake in the ground that says, hey, we believe that this product should exist. And we're putting our reputation on the line, which, you know, whether that matters or not, I don't know. But it kind of means that you can't really change your mind that much anymore. So if it turns out that your great idea is unmanufacturable or... The worst case scenario I often see is people raise way more money than they think, and they just start doing stretch goals, and, yeah. and they change their they change the stakes. They start somewhere. adding things in that you know can't, they can't really manufacture. Right, yeah. and that becomes really messy and yeah. and problematic and scary. Yeah, and the other flip side is that a lot of people doing Kickstarter campaigns are first time entrepreneurs, <laughs> extremely inexperienced first time yeah. entrepreneurs, and I definitely fall in that category. I did yeah. both my Kickstarter campaigns with zero experience. And the fact that we were able to deliver the first one was was an absolute fluke. <laughs> the second one, oh, we I, didn't you, I didn't know you'd actually done one. That's yeah, what, yeah, we did one so that kind it. of yeah. worked out, yeah. and the other one just bombed. But I think finances was a huge part of that, right? Yeah. So the thing that really killed Trigger Trap was that we raised half a million dollars from Kickstarter, and suddenly it felt like you could throw pro- throw money at any problem because the bank account is full. Yeah, There's yeah, nothing yeah. that yeah. could possibly go wrong. <laughs> But then, you know, as a finance person, you're giggling at me because you know exactly how that goes. If you think that you can throw money at every problem, hardware turns out to be really expensive. And we You can throw money at every problem. You just have to raise more money. Sure. You know, like that is like sure. the, the constant advice. I think you've heard me say this like a million times is always raise more money. And I, the person that you referred over, she was raising 750 which is a perfectly reasonable amount. And I was like, you know what? Just raise like a million or 1.2 because I'm just telling you it's good. And she's like, it was great because she actually said, you know, we were originally going to raise 500, but people gave us that advice and now we're raising 750. And I was like, 750 is still not going to be enough for a yeah. hardware product. So raise a million or 1.2, you know, but so if you, if you give yourself a huge buffer, you can do that. And I totally advise to doing that. But the scary thing about a huge buffer is that then you know you have a buffer. Right, and you kind of lose the cost controls. That's you lose very the, true. You just run out and buy yeah. iPads all the time. Yeah, but I, I just would rather have it that way than the I don't have any money. Sure, <laughs> we're bankrupt. You sure, know, that thing. Actually, I, it's an interesting thing. I think if you raise the money, you need to uh, raise the money. I'm totally good with words. <laughs> if you raise a round, uh, you should have a very clear milestone in mind. Yeah. So as soon as you raise the money, you go okay with this million dollars. I have to deliver these five things in order to raise another round. And it's actually a really transactional thing. Completely. And so, any good VC is going to ask for those milestones ahead right, of time. Yeah. Right. And then they also say, mm, that milestone's not strong enough to raise money, so you need to actually do something better than that. Yeah. You know? And I've now sat, sat in on a lot of board meetings where yeah. we have that exact conversation yeah. where it's like, look, if you don't have a very clear milestone where you think, you know, these this million dollars should get us to these five milestones, so... 
uh, I don't know, 20 units out in the world, a good, a good picture of what our customer acquisition cost is going to yep. be, and a solid uh, functioning prototype and a whatever, right? So there's a list of things. And you put a budget against those, so you go, okay, that means I have to raise 1.2 million instead yeah. of 1 million or whatever. At, that is like the whole game. And then because now you've been an entrepreneur and now you're on the VC side, the good entrepreneurs sandbag those projections for their board and the VCs. So they build in like another 20% error. So if it says 1.2, it probably they're probably in their head or internally really budgeting like a million dollars. But they know that they can't go back to the VCs at a time of weakness or they'll get, you know, it's going to be not, not pretty. It's not yeah. going to be a good term sheet. So they, the good ones sandbag and tell the VCs that this is what it's going to be, but they really give themselves another three months or something like that. Yeah. It's also why debt is, is very good for startups in moderate amounts because you can actually extend your runway through venture debt for like another three to six months, and it's less dilutive. You obviously need to be smart about it, not take too much money, all those kind of things. But those extra three months tend to be incredibly valuable. Right. And those are the months where you're kicking ass yeah. trying to raise more money. Exactly. Right? And especially for hardware companies because people underestimate the deposits that have, that you have to give to your manufacturers. Yeah. It's just like something they don't think about. And it's well, like, and NREs, right? Yeah. Um, what, what does NRE stand for? Uh, non-recurring engineering okay, cost. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is basically the, a... To engineer the production, right? Sure. So it's, it's making the tool. So each individual yeah. piece of plastic yeah. in a widget costs maybe 20 cents because you basically you get like a giant bag of PVC pellets yeah. or ABC or ABS pellets. But you have pellets. to make the tool. But the tool yeah. will cost a phenomenal amount of yeah. money. And you know, you have a um, suspected amount of life and the tool gets offset against the production cost yeah. if you do the, the funding correctly. But it still means that you, you will pay 5000 10000 15000 up front to make a giant hunk of metal that in itself is worthless. It's a tool you use to, so to do the shocks. We have a client that's doing making 3D printing of tools now. And it's like one of my favorite clients because they're basically enabling this whole sector to do it super cheaply. Because like you're saying five or $10,000, but that, in my experience, that's actually pretty cheap for like a yeah. something that's going to manufacture a lot of stuff. And yeah. like... Usually, it's, I think it's like fifty thousand, or you know. If you talk, and it's all related to size and stuff, yeah. and and advancedness of the tool. Some yeah. tools are surprisingly advanced, right? They can have like a series of moving parts. They can have all these, you know. Uh, some parts are finished with a with a, with a texture. Some parts are perfectly smooth because stickers need to go there. And yep. the amount of work that goes into making a tool is actually a whole skill set in itself. Yeah. But those things are expensive. Other um, non-recurring engineering revenues, uh, sorry, engineering costs are things like uh, FCC approvals, mm. right? So if you send anything that does a transmission, you have to have a... Oh, I never thought about that. Jeez. Right. And so, yeah. um, and drop tests and and uh, uh, water ingress tests and all that kind of thing. Hardware is weird like that. Yeah. But there's a lot of stuff that go, or, you know, designing your packaging, designing your, and making sure that your packaging has the drop security it needs. So the stuff arrives in one piece. Yeah. And Even the amount, all the stuff you're listing off, I've never thought of. You're totally right. You right. Know? And this is the crazy thing about the hardware. World. And the package has got to look good so people want to buy the product, you know. Yeah. And this, I mean, if you're listening to this and you're doing a SaaS business, you are doing it right. <laughs> because there's so many things you don't have to worry about. On the other hand, hardware is a lot more fun. Yeah. So I guess you're losing out It's also out more defensible. One. Like if you, you know... We're, I think we're in an age of SaaS where it's a little easier to build SaaS than yeah. it used to be. Like five years ago, it was still really hard and right. it's getting easier. And so that means there's more copycats and things like that. But you like have that. tool sets, right? Yeah. You have, you know, 
I remember software back in the day when you had to spin up your own servers, which means you have to spend $20,000 on servers and server racks and space and everything. Now, people would laugh at you if you suggested that, if you don't suggest to use uh, Azure or AWS or whole, Google. That's where the whole venture debt industry came from, financing server costs. Right. Like, they made it a variable, they made it a non-fixed cost through debt. Right. And that's how the whole industry grew up. And then once, like, Amazon and Azure came, that's it all shifted, yeah. And so we're seeing a lot of that happening in hardware now, right? So it wasn't that long ago that if you wanted to spin up an IoT product, you would have to do reinvent the wheel on every possible thing. You want to use a SIM card? Cool. There was no kind of off-the-shelf anything. Now, if you look at the things like Bird and all that kind of, uh, the, the scooter companies yeah. that are zooming around here in San Francisco, they all run a tiny little board called Particle. No, really? Yeah, so there's a little particle board in there which gives them for free uh, radio frequency. It gives them... So basically all they do is they have a particle board in there that does uh, uh, GPS tracking and inventory control, essentially. And it turns off and on the power to the scooter and maybe plays an alarm sound if you try and steal it. If someone is producing all these boards, wow. Well, particle, right? So you can buy these things for $12 a pop. But if you look a little bit, look on, look at the particle.com website, and you can see, basically, you can take this tiny little board and turn it into anything. You can automate anything in your yeah. house, all that kind of stuff. Now, if that had existed when I did my first hardware company, it would have saved us at least a year of development yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Because basically, we didn't have to reinvent the wheel. It's like a programmable circuit and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, but That's it's really specifically cool. a platform for building other cool stuff. So yeah. it's basically like AWS, but for hardware. That's really cool. I remember there was a couple companies like 10 years ago that didn't make it that were trying to do that. So it's cool to hear. I've lost touch, so I don't know the industry that well, that there's a company out there making all this happen. That's, yeah. And then they get better and better and they get enough volume and then they become a successful company. That's yeah, really there's cool. been a few. I mean, Arduino was like the early one that yeah. had some... It, it isn't nearly as good at anything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then Raspberry Pi came along, which is like a computer in a box and that's that super yeah. exciting. But again, yeah. it doesn't... That's open source too, right? Or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that, that one's interesting in that it doesn't natively have any of the IoT stuff, right? It's a computer. So you still have to add a networking interface, yeah, that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So the next generation is is the... Uh, there's one called Chip Pro. There's one called... Or there's a Raspberry Pi on a stick that has all the I.O. stuff already dealt with. Wow. So there's a whole number of ways of, of developing very rapidly where you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You yeah. don't have to think about a whole architecture. You basically have the architecture and you just do the magic sauce that makes your product special. The cool thing is once you, once you bought like, uh, buy like a radio module, that is in itself already FCC approved. Oh, no way. So you can have like a module approval and you still need to do a separate emissions approval and stuff, but the most expensive and problematic part of that is already solved by the supplier you're using. That's really cool. That is the, the exact analogy for Amazon Web Services. Yeah. In fact, Amazon will probably be coming out with some of that. I'm sure they'll, they're looking at that and being like, we should do that too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, they have a history of, of making like game engines and stuff like that. Yeah. So this seems like a pretty logical next step, and especially because they're, they're doing making, so much IoT stuff. Yeah, I was going to say, then they have like drone initiatives and all kind of crazy stuff. So yeah. that's cool. So does that answer your question on the matching? I don't know if I actually specifically answered matching. No, let's do that one more time. Okay. So matching would be, you're talking about like an invoice and payment, right? Is that what yeah, I'm talking about the matching principle so, between all the bits and pieces that go into a product and when you recognize it as cost and revenue. Yeah. So I was thinking of like simple, very, this is very simple. Like you, you get an invoice and you eventually, you store that invoice, you owe someone some money and then you make a cash payment or a wire or whatever. In accounting, you match the invoice with the cash payment and you close out that invoice. So think of it as like an open door and a closed door. So one of the things we send all of our clients is accounts payable 
um, schedules and it shows all their open invoices and kind of, so that way they can expect, cause you talked about how the cash flow is different for hardware companies, especially they can, they know what they spent like in a, ca- in a cash flow way, but then they can look at their invoices, their open accounts payable and say, Oh man, there's another $500,000 coming due over the next 60 days that I need to make sure I'm, I'm ready for and be able to pay. That's the way I think about matching, matching invoices with cash payments and closing out those invoices. Yeah. Um, and I think in the context of hardware, it's specifically around, you know, you may have a warehouse full of bits and pieces, but you don't recognize those of costs until you ship the final product. Exactly. They sit on your balance sheet in inventory, and then you, as you assemble them into one big product or many different products, you then recognize that when you ship it out the door. Yeah. That's exactly how it goes. And I think so the you gotta real... keep track of all that stuff. That's it's called work in progress inventory. Yeah. And it's actually very complicated. So that's so if I were to connect this to like our deep dive to start the podcast, we're sorry I got ahead of myself. When I say we expense everything in the early days, it means that it's not really worth the company's time or money to have this big work in progress. Um, spreadsheet and, and keep track of all this stuff. There's some actually some good SaaS products that keep track of this stuff too, because it's just like it's not material to the business yet. They don't have right. product market fit. They're just building and also prototypes. they're probably not really building product, right? They're building yeah, prototypes. prototypes. And at that, at that point, it is definitely R and D, and it's definitely an expense, yes. not a. That's a good point. And so they there's this shift that we we're constantly checking in with them, being like, Do you have enough volume? Do you have enough money? Is this Series B? Or is this Series? You know, what series is this? And that's when we start doing these big schedules and, and keeping track of working pro- progress inventory. Candidly, for hardware companies, because they're so accounting intensive, they actually usually bring in like a full-time VP of finance or controller earlier yeah. than our SaaS company clients yeah. because it's like double or triple the work. Yeah. And so the outsourced CFO accounting works really well when it's not crazy complicated and there's kind of like a pattern. So SaaS companies are perfect for us. Early stage hardware companies are perfect for us. But as they scale, they need someone like full-time. It just gets too crazy. Well, and the thing is, something that another luxury that software companies don't ever have to worry about is is queue-keeping, right? Uh, SKUs, stop-keeping units. It's like if you think about it, each individual component that goes into an iPhone probably has a a stop-keeping unit. So you have – it's not just a battery and a screen, right? It's hundreds if not thousands of individual components. It's a resistor. It's a transistor. It's a processor. It's a memory chip. It's a screen. It's a button. It's lots of buttons. And all of those individual pieces, they start – so if you think about it, Apple buys those individual pieces from a supplier and it goes into a warehouse and now they have a thousand SKUs. Now those individual SKUs eventually disappear – because they get built into a, into a product. And so yeah. those they go from a thousand SKUs to one SKU, which is an iPhone X. That's the bill of materials. The, that yes. list of materials is what goes into a final product, basically. Precisely. Now, now there's a good... We have a lot of robot companies because robot companies are hot right now and they're hardware. What a lot of them do, um, and I'd be curious to see if your companies are doing this, is they will work with the contract manufacturer and essentially yes. buy the finished product, which makes the accounting so much easier. Yeah. The, the contract manufacturer is solving a problem of like this assembly problem that you're talking about for the for the startup. Eventually, probably the startups either get enough volume to really kind of beat down the price from the contract manufacturer or they bring it in-house or, you know, have their own manufacturing. Although, but, honestly, Apple still uses Foxconn for a lot. Yeah, and they're they a do, contract cause, manufacturer. Because it makes sense, right? And so, but that makes the accounting aspect of this easier because yeah. you basically have like a arm's length transaction where you're like, I'm paying $1,000 for this robot and that, yeah. therefore... I know exactly what I'm spending for this thing, and it's going to be cost of goods sold. Da da da. Yeah. And you have less 
you have less of this um, crazy buildup for your inventory. Yeah. Well, ironically, actually, startups don't generally have this problem because they use a contract manufacturer or whatever. Most of the, time, the people yeah. who really have a big problem are people like cabinet makers, right? You buy 16 planks, you use 12 <laughs> totally. and a half planks, totally. uh, and you, just, you have to reconcile that yeah, properly. Yeah. So smaller, more lifestyle businesses run into this way more often because maybe they're not really set up to scale. Yeah. I think at scale, that's where this becomes painful, but then suddenly it's worth paying to solve the problem. Yep. And the contract manufacturing has been a huge trend over like the last 20 or 30 years, but, but we, do, we do have some companies that build all their own stuff. And it's, it's, again, we'll do in the early days, it's not Gap. It's like, we call it semi-Gap where we're expensing <laughs> it. But, small, small gap. Yeah, exactly. But then they get to that point where it's like, okay, we're going to do this for reals. We're raising huge amounts of money. We need to do things the right way. And that's when like, that kicks in. Yeah. Does that answer the question? Though? Yes. This is good. We actually, that's, that's like a lot of hard, like a lot of hardware accounting. Someone will be able to listen to those 10 or 15 minutes and be like, okay, now I know. Yeah. Well, I'm Can not. you guys talk about something interesting now, yeah. please? I'm hoping they will know <laughs> what we're talking about. But I think this is fascinating. I think this is actually the reason why I wanted to come back and have another conversation with you because yeah. I thought this exact thing would happen. I asked you a relatively simple question and we talk for 30 minutes and 30 was that seconds 30 minutes? no oh yep. my god That's about but i think i think this is fascinating right and this is why it's fun to be a guest it's a podcast. conversation we have with entrepreneurs all the time yeah because you mentioned it's not a lot of hardware founders are first time I think part of that is honestly they're brave enough to do a hardware company because they're really freaking hard. Brave. And That's totally the word I would use. I, I think it <laughs> crazy is. Crazy is another is. word. Yeah, crazy. And so we have this conversation because they'll hear something in a board meeting or they'll, they'll be like, why aren't we doing the whole work in progress inventory? And it's like, well, we could, but instead of charging you $1,000, it'd be like $4,000 a month. Do you yep. want to do that? And we don't really, in our uh, professional opinion, it's not necessary yet because you haven't hit like any right. kind of scale and product market fit. And so that's, that's these conversations. But I think that is something I really love about some suppliers and hate about others. So, I mean, in the big scale of, of startups and stuff, lawyers and accountants are crucial, right? You need them. But a lot of them are not very good at being pragmatic. And I think that is my biggest pet peeve. You like, yes, you right could people. do, yeah. right. You could do inventory accounting. Or, yes, you could file 53 patents, but honestly, those are not necessarily the right things to do. And where you easily get into problems as a startup founder is that you have the professional at your beck and call, your lawyer, who tells you you have to go and file patents. But they are coming from a really weird conflict of interest because they will make a lot of money from doing those patents. And so you get a really weird situation where you don't really know where to turn for advice. Yeah. You can really only turn to your lawyer for legal advice, but they, their incentive is a little bit off. Yeah. You have to find people. There's a long-term incentive that good lawyers understand, especially the Silicon Valley lawyers, which is in accounts. If they do the right thing, give you the right advice, you have a much higher probability of being successful, in which case you'll be a client for five or ten years instead right. of six months. And so the, the best people all kind of do it that way. And they also know that refer, like word of mouth is where most of their marketing comes from. So by doing the right thing for an entrepreneur over and over again, you just get the word of mouth. Like we spend almost no money on marketing because folks like you send people over to us and say, hey, talk to my friend Scott. He can help you out with his, your accounting and your taxes. You know? So for us, we think of that. We think of like high quality service and always doing the right thing as like almost like a marketing cost. And like the best law, the best lawyers do that. What where you get in trouble is like you think you're saving five thousand dollars on an incorporation or whatever, and your uncle does it, but your uncle incorporates you as an LLC and does all these things wrong, and then you you know whatever it is, and then 
you end up spending way more. Vanessa actually has a really good slide in her presentation that shows the cost of using a bad accountant or like a bookkeeper you found on Yelp. Or what Facebook. is the worst that could happen, Scott? It's, it's about 20, on average, we have it at about $20,000 of, of cost because what they do is they, A, they do things wrong usually. Not, and they're nice people, they're doing their best. They're just right. not like highly trained and optimized for startups. Like they're doing right. probably like a bakery and a, a woodworking company and then they're also doing your SaaS startup or your hardware startup. Right. Like there's no way they can, they know all the, all the rules and how to do everything. And then the, the things that people don't talk about or they don't know is that like oftentimes they don't know how to do taxes, so they refer you to someone. Right. They don't have a good, strong relationship because they only do like five companies at a time. So they refer someone that charges you $5,000 for your taxes instead of 1500 like us. And oh, by the way, they forgot to do an RD tax credit because they don't even – that tax person who's like – we always joke it's like the tax – the CPA on El Camino, which is in like Menlo Park, you know. That's who – we, we see who people are using for their taxes before they come to us. And it's like, the, it's like a local CPA that you're like, what is this person doing doing a startup tax return? And of course, they forget this, the R&D tax credit, which is for, – for those who don't know, R&D tax credits used to be you offset some of your R&D costs with – against your profits later on in life and you get a tax credit, you get money back. Well, last year the IRS said and Treasury said that you can use it on payroll taxes. So it became like- So what does that mean? That means that you can offset your payroll taxes, like the taxes that we all, every company pays, immediately with an R&D tax credit. And R&D tax credits are generally about 10% of whatever you spend on R&D costs, like payroll for engineers, right. contractor payments in the US, also equipment for hardware companies. Well, it sounds to me, Scott, like that is basically a 10% discount on your tax bill. It is, exactly. It's, it's basically getting, you capture 10% of your, of whatever you spend in R&D. So you can actually get, it's more than a 10% credit on a uh, discount. You can actually pay no payroll taxes. You can get up to $250,000 in payroll tax credits. Nice. And so this is like, but $250,000 of found money, right? We did a study, we did like our analysis, and last year we did almost $2 million of R&D tax credits. The average R&D tax credit was $38,000. Nice. So you can imagine like $38,000 for every one of these companies. That's a huge amount of money. Yeah, that's like three or four angels yeah. that you don't have to tax exactly. for money. Exactly. And you got it for free basically. You know, And like the, the local tax CPAs just don't know about this. This is something that happened just last week where I had been talking to a company in November, December. The woman, great, she's building a great business. She actually had a baby, so she didn't want to sign up with us until later, until this year. And in between her having those conversations with us, she had, she just like wanted to get her taxes done in February. So she had the local CPA do their taxes. This is a woman who's super smart. She's, she's built a hell of a business. She actually used to be a corporate lawyer for startups, so she knows, she's, right. she's as educated as you could possibly be about stuff. And unfortunately that, CPA didn't do an RD tax credit and also didn't file an extension. If they would have filed an extension, we could have gone back and done it. And so she lost $40,000 because she delayed working with us for two or three months. But so she saved some money though. She didn't have to pay she you. She saved about probably $1,000. See? It's worth it. But so Spend $40,000 to this save is, $1,000. Yeah. And I'm a little bit on my soapbox here, but like this is because I see this pattern over and over where it's like, it, she wasn't doing it to save money. She had a baby. And it was sure, like sure, too sure. complicated. But well, I'll see these people who are like, no, I don't want to pay an extra $200 to work with you. And we, I'm sitting there going like, that's cool, but you're probably going to, I know they're going to probably miss out on like $20,000 or $30,000. So there's the penny, penny wise, pound foolish thing. That's yeah. tracing it all back. That's if you don't use good advisors, like good lawyers and good accounting firms, 
and good, you know, marketing consultants and you just end up bleeding money because you just don't get the service you need. But I mean, it's it's interesting to me because it's kind of a well-known thing that hiring the wrong person like into your company is the single most expensive thing you'll yeah. do. And the logical extension of that is hiring the long, wrong lawyer or the wrong accountant is exactly the same thing. Yeah. They just people just don't understand it sometimes. They I think sometimes they think it's a commodity like I was just on a call with um, the CEO of a, of a really cool New York company that we've been working with for a year. And he was, <clears throat> he started off, he was like, you know, I, I kind of think like the accounting stuff is like, is a commodity. Like, I don't even know why I'm paying you guys. And I like started laughing and I'm like, that's cause you've been working with us since day one. You have, you have no idea how many fucked up financials I get that we then fix. And by the way, and like, he's like, you know, and I went and walked him through all that. He's like, you're totally right. I'm sorry. And I hope I didn't offend you. And I was like, it's okay. I get that question a lot. Yeah. Now, and now I have an anecdote from my podcast. And, and, <laughs> but, but the even better, like 20 minutes before you walked in to do this podcast, I overheard our tax VP and our controller on that account finding a tax rebate for them. This company has no idea this is even happening. They found a tax rebate in New York that's gonna, that like literally the company's gonna get like $50,000 back that they have no idea. And by the way, their lawyer doesn't, is not very sophisticated. So the lawyer was arguing with us on some others. Like the lawyer doesn't know taxes and is gonna end up costing this company a bunch of money. But like just, just now, just because we're good at what we do, Steven, our VP of tax, saved this company like $50,000 after- Do you two, get a commission? No, we don't. But like two weeks ago, the CEO was telling me that it wasn't, we didn't provide a valuable service, you know? Yeah. So like, there's just weird stuff that comes up that you may not know or be able to anticipate. Right. So just use someone good. And, and the best people are people in your network who know who's good, who can just refer you. Like right. the chances of you doing a Google search and finding someone good is not super high. Like I would network if I was picking someone, yeah. you know, same as you pick your VCs. You don't just, you don't just like Google the venture capital and then be like, I'm going to call those bolt guys. Yeah. No, you like look around, you network around, you find out who's good from yeah, word yeah. of mouth and you. Yeah. Hello, switchboard. Can I talk to Mark Andreessen, please? I heard he's good. <laughs> I heard this. I got a big <laughs> it, idea. Does he have time to something in? <laughs> That'd be good no? for me. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's how it works. So anyways, okay. That was a little, I got on my high horse there, but that's good. That's it's good. a, it's a passionate thing where I see people making the same mistake over and over again. And I'm like, God, if you could just, just, just please don't make that same mistake. Let's talk about, I really do think you guys are really brave and awesome for doing this. Like, I think actually it makes perfect sense. Right. So I think there is, um, it's an underserved market. It's exactly what venture capitalists should be doing. It's yeah. exactly what VCs should And be I mean, so start with two premises. One is that not a lot of people are investing in hardware. And two, hardware is incredibly difficult to predict who is going to be successful yeah. and who isn't. And so what we do from there is to de-risk it as much as possible. So we have an uh, extensive prototype shop in both Boston, oh, Boston and San Francisco. Oh, talk about that. That's awesome. I've been to your office. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the prototype shop basically has a ton of machines in it that helps you build prototypes. So we have 3D printers. We have laser cutters. We have lathes, mills, uh, CNC machines, uh, a lot of... Uh, tools to do like woodworking and, and um, metal bending and uh, there's an environmental chamber that helps you like ramp up and down through temperature and humidity so you can actually test properly whether or not your device that you're putting in a car yeah. can withstand the heat oh, in Arizona awesome. uh, and all that sort of stuff. And, and it looks awesome. It does it's look just, awesome. It's a cool, very cool office like manufacturing thing. Like it's yeah, it's the real deal. So this is one half of it, right? So it yeah. means that when you take money from us, you get to move in with us, so you don't have to pay for pay rent. Yeah, uh, you get to use to shop, which is a fantastic luxury because being able to get up off your desk, yeah. walk That's twenty feet, point. 
and uh, build and whatever you're talking build about. Build what it is. And if it doesn't work, don't worry about it. Build another one. If that doesn't work, don't worry about it. Yeah. Build another one. So it's like the, the rapid prototyping that you get in software for free because you're working on a computer is hard in hardware. And so having access to the shop is really good there. The second thing we're doing to de-risk it is to basically have a really good engineering team. So you work with uh, industrial designers, mechanical engineers, electronical engineers, uh, project managers, people who've shipped hundreds of thousands, in some cases millions and millions of That's products. Awesome. So they've seen it, right? Yeah. And they go, well, actually, you could do it that way. But in my experience, when we were shipping iPhones, yeah. this doesn't work for these five reasons. Yeah. And so tapping into that... Even knowing where to turn for advice is impossibly hard yeah. in hardware. And, you know, the people working out of our space have like five or six uh, hardware experts that they can reach out to at one end of the building. They have a workshop at the other end of the building. And it, it really does... These sound like really good perks for a startup, but in the cold, hard light of day, it is for us to yeah. us to de-risk the investments, yeah, totally, right? Totally. We're, we have the same model as any other VC, which means... You know, some of the companies will fail, some of them will be moderately successful, and hopefully there'll be one or two runaway winners, yeah. and that's how we make our money. Yeah. And I think it's just, it's real basic mathematics. If you also, model it out, this is the only way to do it. Also, like if there, I think it's, maybe this is something I didn't understand before this podcast, if there's companies like Particle that are making manufacturing easier, you're probably, you guys may talk about this internally, like we're on the cusp of this like golden age of e- simpler prototyping and bringing hardware products to market a lot easier in the same way that Amazon Web Services and other stuff made it easier to build a SaaS company five to ten years ago or yeah. five, five years ago. That's a huge, that's like a great thing to talk to your LPs about and get them excited about and raise money about because like if you can like by an order of magnitude de-risk something in the ways you're talking about it but also just other people being out there in the ecosystem make it easier to build. Yeah. That's huge. That's how you get big returns. Yeah. And while, while all the other VCs are saying like, oh, I don't invest in hardware companies. Sure. Because I've heard that a million times. Like I have so and many VCs sense, say right? I don't invest in hardware companies. And I think the reason that makes sense is that it makes sense to have a good tight thesis. The tighter your thesis is, the, the more likely you are to get the deal flow yeah. into things you are good at and good at evaluating. I mean, there, there are people who only uh, invest in enterprise SaaS. Yep. And... No offense to those people, that sounds incredibly boring to me, but it means that you have a very clear set of metrics and you have a clear benchmark. And if somebody comes through your door and says, this is what we're seeing, and it falls outside those benchmarks, they better have a good story for why that is. And so from an academic point of view, running a VC firm that does SaaS means that you have a lot of comparables. And that becomes a very good business model. I always say like the VC business is like the solar system, you know how companies fit relative to other companies and that you the other thing is like this is super underrated but you get the call mm-hmm. you get the call i'm sure you guys get the call on every hardware company worth or salt we are because the hardware people yeah because like people know and they're like oh call high at, at bolt like he'll he'll take a look you know because that's all he does hardware all day long yep. it's not the hey maybe i can fit you into my schedule next week because i don't really give a shit about hardware companies right. kind of typical response from a vc you know yeah. it's like oh i'll do this right now we're set up to evaluate your kind of company. That's what we do. Yeah. I mean, we specifically like to say that we invested the intersection of hardware and software, which is interesting, right? So some of our hardware, some of our companies are incredibly light on hardware. They're basically just using an off-the-shelf component that helps them feed their algorithms to be, you know, powerful. And if it, mm-hmm. if it was up to them, they wouldn't even use that piece of hardware. Yeah. They're really software companies at heart. Yeah. Others are very, very heavy, very advanced hardware companies yeah. with a very light-touch software. Yeah. 
right? And we have the full gamut, right? There's people doing uh, manufacturing tools that are basically exclusively hardware. Yeah. And there are people who are basically machine learning companies. In fact, we have a couple of pure software uh, companies as well. So it's like the full range there, but they're all kind of within our wheelhouse because they are, they have some sort of relation to what we used to call IoT and it's now yeah. called connected hardware the, or whatever. You see them all. I would love like five years from now for you guys to do an analysis on is it the heavy hardware side that produces the big returns or is it the software orient more software than hardware kind of companies? That, that is that a really good question. Yeah. And I, guess I don't know. I honestly don't know which one it would be because I've seen some awesome hardware companies get bought for tons of money yeah. because they're just so hard to replicate. Well, if you think about Nest, for example, right? They were one of the original IoT yeah. companies that are like smart home companies. And they, are they a hardware company? I would argue they're a software company. I mean, so yes, they have a very important hardware component, but honestly, that hardware component isn't that hard to make. The it magic made it, sauce it made for it them. tangible to people. Yeah. I, I actually lost Nest uh, in a venture debt deal, and I lost it partly because, or my partner and I lost it because they we didn't go like cheap enough. And I still remember the the uh, partnership meeting where our East Coast partner, he's the greatest guy ever, but he was like. I don't understand why you want to do this deal. It's a thermostat company. And I was like, this is like something we've never seen before. Like we need to do this deal. And we lost. And that was like a 10X, you know, that was a 10X at that point. I think the valuation was like $300 million at that point. Right. So like that was a huge mistake. That was, but our team couldn't see why this was a unique kind of thermostat. They couldn't see the software aspect of it. I think they just saw a a thermostat. But I think that is also fair, right? Because it doesn't fit into your worldview. The first person who took a look at Airbnb also had no idea what Airbnb was. Well, the first 3,000 people who looked at Airbnb were like, eh, what the hell is this? But the interesting thing is one of our partners, Greg McAdoo, was the person who finally saw that Airbnb was a good idea and invested. Are you kidding me? Oh my gosh. So yeah, he did very well out of that, uh, as did Sequoia. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so that is kind of the interesting thing, being able to spot the patterns. So I've only been in venture for about six months. The main thing I've realized is that pattern spotting is incredibly hard when the deck that's in front of you is for something you've never heard about. And that isn't because, you know, they're not going to do great, but it doesn't have the Nest logo on it. Yeah. It doesn't have the Ring logo on it. It doesn't yeah. have the Sonos logo on it. And only, I know this is such a banal thing to say, but it's only in retrospect, looking back, that, yeah, of course Sonos was going to be successful. And yeah. when you look at a Sonos deck from the early days, you go, oh, yeah, no, of course, they were always going to be successful because there's a Sonos logo. What you forget is that the first time you see this deck, Sonos means nothing. Yeah, yeah. It's right? also, I think there's, I think the way, and no one's perfect, like, I miss tons of stuff. But, like, if I always have the mentality of, like, I'm lucky to be sitting with this entrepreneur for half an hour, an hour, and they are going to teach. They are the world's expert in whatever they're doing, and they're going to teach me why it's important and what's so cool about it. And if you, it's almost like going to school. And if you go to school, instead of asking questions like design to trip them up or show how smart you are or whatever, if you you just do it like you're going to school and you're listening to a world expert, like you're going to the MoMA to listen to hear about these paintings, you know, or whatever. If you do it that way, you you tend to see their enthusiasm captures you and you can see what's going on. Now, sometimes what that does is it you end up loving everything and then right. you can't say no and then you end up spending all well, your money. Well, at least money. you get a huge portfolio. Yeah. You get a huge portfolio of companies that don't succeed and then you have no more bullets in the chamber, right? Yeah. That's the danger. But I, that was always how we tried to think about it, you know? Also, just like it helps if you're – like you are – 
very interested in hardware. Like you ran a hardware company or two hardware companies. Like, you can say nerd. It's yeah, okay. Yeah, you're a nerd. <laughs> so like to you, this stuff speaks at your core in the same way that like 10 years ago, social networking spoke to my core, you know, and a lot of our SaaS companies do now. And it's, it's like, it's just something you enjoy. You know, it's, it's almost like a hobby. Like I think of our business, there's definitely like grueling days and nights and things like that, but it's pretty fun for me because I just like working with the companies. I like working with the CEOs and they yeah. teach me stuff all day long. But this is, this is the main thing I'm loving about my job, right? It's a real privilege to be able to work with people who are far smarter than me, who are delivering on really amazing dreams. Yeah. Um, but you're also really them. good at what you do. So I think, sure. I think they're lucky to have you too. And you're going to magnify a lot of these stories. And the cool, I think the cool thing about what you're doing is like, by magnifying some of these stories, you could you could make the difference in like a twenty million dollar pre money valuation and a fifty million dollar pre value. And, and no one's I don't know if anyone's ever going to be like that was high as work. No, there's never going to be a direct correlation or a direct formula. Right. But like companies, other investors or people or customers will start hearing about the companies in your portfolio a lot earlier yep. than they probably would. I hope so. And it makes like that those little proof points or little data points make all the difference you know there's one of the sequoia partners doug leone was famous for going around at cocktail party. actually i think it was doug leone doug leone or I, i'm forgetting but anyway whatever the story is the sequoia partner would go around at all the holiday parties instead of saying like hey how are you doing he would ask what's your three hottest deals and that was his way of getting like all the intelligence in the market you know or what's your hottest deal and right because everyone at that thing has one deal they're super proud of but like that's how you find out what that's how he would find out one of the ways of like what to invest in. So yeah. when the Bolt guys are at the Sequoia Christmas party or holiday party, and he may have already heard of the companies before you before you know is he, it just means I just think you're magnifying word of mouth and you're magnifying like the adoption of these companies and it really yeah. helps if a VC has heard about something before they're looking at it and they know it's doing well. And yeah. So I think your job is pretty cool. Well, and the storytelling part of that is super exciting. And I think just being able, I mean, pitching is storytelling. Everything is storytelling. Yeah. But pitching in particular yeah. is storytelling, which is really cool. The other really big thing I've learned over the last few months is um, Bolt is really big on uh, what they call founder market fit. Product That's kind of what we're fit. talking about. Like you love hardware. You're going to be a hardware person. You're not going right. to burn burned out on it. But I think that is the magical thing about, you know, if you're investing in pre-seed stage, I mean, a lot of the time we're investing in inklings of an idea and a team who has a really good uh, vision of what yeah. they want the world to look like. Yeah. That is hopefully somebody who is already an expert in the space. So they're really good at the market. They really get what they're doing and the why of it. And then... That's all you can really do. I mean, I, right. I don't know if you remember, we can't tell, say what this company did, but I sent you a diagnostic company mm -hmm. and it's a home diagnostic. And like the guy who's doing it knows the stuff cold. He yep. just knows the cold. And like my decision to invest in him was like my personal money, Vanessa's personal money was like just the passion and how well he knows it. And he's lived it and he's run a home diagnostic company before. And it's like, boom, done. Here's the money. And... It, it's a little cliche, like you shouldn't do venture capital like that theoretically, but sometimes you just see it and you have to just take the leap and yeah. you're never going to get more comfortable. It's until right. a year from now, at which point, or two years from now, at which point you're paying a huge premium in valuation yeah. and people like me don't get to play in that world because I don't have a fund and you guys are early, so you guys probably don't get to do the late stage stuff, so you got you yep. to be right early. But, but com the converse of that is also true that, I mean, my first company was in photography and hardware and I I nailed it. Yeah. The company wasn't that successful, but for 
Photography, I get. Yeah. Right? Hardware, yeah, yeah, yeah. sure, I get now. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit too late. <laughs> but my next two companies, one was in marketing, and I explicitly ended up walking away from it because I wasn't just that passionate didn't about solving yeah. the problem. Yeah. And the second company, I just didn't know enough about. Yeah. Right? And I, we, we got some really, really good advisors, some really good partners. But it turns out that founder market fit. I mean, I was really passionate about it, still am. But I just wasn't the right person yeah. to get this... To, to land this and that was massive epiphany to me because I really thought I was. The reason why we're successful as a company is because Vanessa lives and breathes accounting and startup accounting and is constantly redesigning our processes and coming up with right. new innovations. Like I can't even tell you how many innovations she comes up on a weekly basis and that's what makes us successful. It's, yep. it's the founder market fit and like I think some advice for people who maybe are having a hard time finding that fit is find someone who's slotted in and fits perfectly and join them. That's basically what I did. Yeah. I saw a extremely talented founder who had like 60 clients by herself. And I was like, holy shit, this, this woman's magic. I'm going to join, even though she happened to be my girlfriend and later my wife, like she knows what she's doing. She nails it. And, and because I'd interacted with accounting firms and startup CFO firms at Lighthouse, I knew they weren't always the strongest and didn't do the greatest job. So there's yeah. a hole in this market. And I jumped in with her. Well, and the other thing is you can't fake that. No. You... There's no way. I mean, even with the most, even with a giant bag of, uh, of, of inspiration in one hand and a giant bag of, yeah. bag of cocaine in yeah. the other, you can't muster that kind of no. enthusiasm, right? No. That is something that has to come in entirely intrinsically from your real genuine passions in life. And other people recognize it. Like, I, I'll never forget she won or we won an award for Emerging Partner of the Year for Expensify two years ago. And we were at the conference, she went up and accepted it, and we weren't like a high profile firm. And every kind of accounting industry luminary like circled her for the next two hours. I didn't even get the chance to talk to my wife after she won this award for like two hours because they saw it, they, they were like right. on her, they were, she was like one of them, right? Yeah. And that's what you're talking about, you know? Like you, and you guys are one of those people, you live and breathe hardware, that's why you guys are investing in it. It's not, you're, it's not like a holiday or a one-off for you guys. Right. And I think that is true for, you know, it is hard to identify that in industries you're not that familiar with. So, you know, how do you find a lawyer that will, you know, But that's part of the that value passionate. prop you guys help founders sure. with is that you know who the good ones are and you forward them over and, you know. Yep. The great thing about Silicon Valley, I always say, is, is reputations really matter. And so everyone's always on their best behavior. Um, and there's just a lot of believers here, you mm -hmm. know, and, and when you see things turn from concept to a successful company, many times you just become a believer yourself or you are a believer and you take that brave step and, and fund that company that maybe someone else doesn't want to fund or you work with them as an accounting firm, you know, cause you believe in them. Yeah. So dude, I think I, I apologize, but I think we got to wrap it up. Sounds good. I got today's the 20th we have a lot of financials going out today. So. Awesome. Back to work, Carl. By the way, shout out to Hyatt for teaching me how to use this brand new recorder that's been sitting on my desk for like two months that is literally was in his box still, and he set it all up for me. So if I sound extra good today, it's because I'm using like some fancy new equipment that he told me to buy. And if like, you never hear this podcast, then we also know why. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> that's an awesome point. I hope you I hope this podcast sees light day. All right, Hyatt Camps, Bolt VC, awesome VC hardware fund. Also a very talented storyteller, marketing experts, uh, and photography nerd. People don't know this, but you've written like six photography books. 16, sure. Six, 16? Oh my God. <laughs> he's written a lot. So, Big okay. Nerd. Thank you for coming over. Appreciate thank it. Thank you for having me. Okay, awesome.